this the life of this movie and the importance of this movie sort of outlives all of the arguments against it. Um, and it kind of embarrasses its critics in a lot of ways. I mean, Spike Lee really is having the last laugh on this one. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I have Wesley Morris back on the show. He's one of my favorite podcasters and social critics, and I'm always stoked to talk to him. This time Wesley and I talk about an iconic movie that came out 30 years ago this summer. You want brothers on the wall? Love. Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. What I tell you about that noise? What I tell you about that picture? You talk some brother talk to him. You the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. The first time you turn your back, boom. Right here, man, in the back. That's from the trailer to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, a movie that transfixed me as a teenager in the summer of 1989. Of course, Do the Right Thing is about events that lead up to an act of violence on the hottest day of the year in a black neighborhood in Brooklyn. I was a white kid from Kansas who back then had never even been to New York, but I was obsessed with the film for two reasons. First, as I mentioned to Wesley Morris, back in the late 1980s, Spike Lee published his film journals as short books, and as someone who knew little about the nuts and bolts of independent filmmaking in that pre-internet era, I was fascinated to read about the creative process in making the movie. And second, Do the Right Thing was simply unlike any movie I'd ever seen in all my years of going to the cinema, and it ended in a way that was both utterly unexpected and completely plausible. Now, I've done a lot of movie retrospectives on the podcast this year, in part because it's the 20th or 25th or 30th anniversary of a lot of iconic movies. Do the Right Thing stands out because, as Wesley and I discuss, it's a remarkably complex movie that still feels relevant after 30 years. We'll get into the specifics of the plot and characters as the conversation plays out, though I will say up front that you should probably watch the movie first to avoid spoilers and appreciate what we talk about. As usual, this episode is brought to you by Airtrex. Check out their online round-the-world flight planning tools at Airtrex.com. But for now, please listen in as Wesley Morris and I talk about why, after 30 years, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is still an extraordinary movie. But I want to talk about Do the Right Thing, which came out 30 years ago. Um, and for this kid who's from Wichita, Kansas, and had never set foot in Brooklyn, it was a weirdly uh, affecting movie for me. I was, I was very transfixed by it um, back in the time. And I was just curious, 30 years after the movie came out, how would you describe this movie to someone who's never seen it before? How would I describe it? You mean, like, do you want a plot description? Well, I mean... If you can or, take a stab you know, at a plot, then then go for it. But maybe if you're trying to convince somebody to see the movie and you don't want to totally give things away, it's not a very orthodox movie. No. Uh, I mean, usually what I say when I want people to see it is, like, it's just one of the best American movies ever made. The case closed. Uh, and then if I'm being more specific, I'll probably say something like, you know, I'll probably give an actual sense of what the movie is. It's, like, set, in a, set on one day on one block in one neighborhood in New York on, on what is said to be the hottest day of the year so far. And um, all that heat and all that sort of sort of racial tension among all the people who live there and among the people who don't live there, but who like have businesses there 
uh, sort of comes to a head over the course of the day. Um, sort of a violent, uh, deadly racial head involving, you know, a business owner and the neighborhood residents and the police is what yeah. I would say. I don't know how convincing that is, but. I think that 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 would convince that would perk people up, I think. I, at the time, and I want to talk about this in a second, it was just such an unusual movie. It didn't really follow the kind of rules you would expect for a movie like this, and especially a movie that dealt with race relations. And it was Spike Lee's first movie that, that really directly touched on race relations, which is a strange thing to think about because we sort of understand Spike Lee now to be a guy who who deals with race, but at the time he had made a couple of comedies. Do you remember when you first saw this? You must have been a teenager. Did you recognize it as a great American movie? Uh, I think so. I mean, I had seen, I'd seen She's Gotta Have It. I'd seen School Days, which is a movie. Uh, School Days is actually a movie about race, too. Um, it's just, it's just like black racism. <laughs> right. It's not about, you know, it's about, it's about, colorism and you know the legacy of the way racism affects black people among each other and so the idea that he would sort of like set that intra-racial tension aside to deal with these sort of more you know these other sort of long-standing racial issues and 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 problems was fascinating um, and also, it, the movie came out during a period in in the Northeast. Although the more that I read about that period, it was pretty. I mean, not that this is shocking at all, but I mean, you know, I lived in Philadelphia. There was no when this movie came out. There was no internet, um, and so you the things you knew about about interactions between black people and the police were entirely situated in your neck of the woods. So I grew up in Philadelphia. There were all kinds of, you know, Philadelphia has its own um, race problems. And the idea that there would be this movie set in, in New York, in Brooklyn, um, that had similar problems among people in a neighborhood. Um, while, you know, there's no, there's no neighborhood in Philadelphia that's like Bed-Stuy. Um, I would. I don't think there is. I mean, I'm, maybe somebody listening is going to be like, "Well, actually, Kensington," but that's not really true. It's just not. There's no place like Bed Stuy. As a person who now lives in Brooklyn and still goes to Philadelphia a couple times a month, there's nothing like Bed Stuy. Um, but the in New York, the at that during that period, there were. I mean, during that period, that whole, that whole decade, the movie came out in 1989. You know, the entire decade had been roiled by. You know, in New York City had been, you know, there were there were so many, you know, mysterious, egregious, complicated deaths by, you know, of black people, men and women at, you know, in police custody or, you know, neighborhood problems where people in the neighborhood were going after black men. Um, and, you know, the Tawana Brawley case was during this period, the story of this woman who said she was raped by a white guy, but it turns out that maybe she wasn't. Um, and, you know, it just, there was all of this stress during this period. Um, and, you know, killings and, 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 and just an anger, but also, you know, because it's New York, you still have to, you know, these people all have to live in these, in these spaces. So there has to, kind of at least 
collegial co- collegiality among all of the of the people who live in this neighborhood. So you know, at the beginning of the movie, everything is fine for about half of it, right? There's this there's this implication that there are some problems, um, and you know, I think that the movie exists atop or you know adjacent to this recent history of 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 death and and racism um and tension that you know real life versions of what happens in the movie um but anyway to answer your actual question i mean did i know it was a great movie when i was watching it uh yeah i did i i did i thought it was i mean i think the things i i would not have necessarily known to say made it great were things like the ending, which wasn't really satisfying in terms of the way the movies, you know, the way American or Hollywood movies sort of teach you how a movie should end. It doesn't end that way. Um, its ending is sort of ambiguous, and it doesn't say that any any particular way of handling this situation is wrong. Um, you know, what Mookie winds up doing to Sal's pizzeria um, and the idea that you'd have a protagonist, who in this case is played by the director, uh, be the person who, who <laughs> you know, every, nobody in the movie does the right thing, I would say. Um, but the person who does the thing that, that, you know, at least mechanically seems the most wrong, um, but also in its wrongness, extremely explicable. I don't know how much more, I mean, should we be specific about what? Well, I was, I was going to jump, I was going to jump in with a spoiler alert. Cause we may as well, it's, it's a 30 year old movie. So we may as well just be candid about what happens. <laughs> so Mookie, you know, who works for Sal's, he's a delivery guy for Sal's famous pizzeria and is sort of between the black community and, and Sal, his employer, um, Mookie's a little bit of a slacker. You know, he's probably not the best father. His sister sort of gives him a hard time about not being motivated. But He's also a terrible delivery man. Like, <laughs> if, like if this guy were bringing your pizzas, you'd be pissed. Yeah. He actually takes a shower. It's the hottest day of the summer, and he spends a, a large portion of one uh, section of the movie taking a shower and cooling off. But at the end of the movie, um, after an incident wherein there's a big conflict uh, between some characters, some people from the new neighborhood and Sal, who's an Italian-American, there's a fight. The police show up and actually end up killing a guy named Radio Rahim. And then Sal, uh, or not, I'm sorry, Mookie throws a trash can through the window of Sal's pizzeria. And he doesn't take part of the right. riot, but he sort of instigates the riot that, that climaxes the movie. And you were mentioning Philadelphia and New York. You know, this was at a time, again, pre-internet, when, when we thought about New York as a nation, we thought about Harlem, and that Brooklyn was this big, you know, mixed place that wasn't necessarily an iconic part of the black imagination. And in fact, Barry Michael Cooper wrote the introduction to Spike Lee's film journal for this, and he talks about uh, how, it, to his imagination, he's from Harlem, this is a, a little bit mm-hmm. foreign to him. This is a new depiction of black America. And so it's, it feels like a very New York-specific story in a way that was probably lost on me as a Kansas guy at the time. I, I was transfixed by the movie just because it ended in a way that movies aren't supposed to end. You know, like mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. all this complexity, and I want to touch on that in a second because up until the very end, all the characters are doing multiple things that are sympathetic and non-sympathetic, and they don't really act like movie people. And I think what impressed upon me was that it just seemed like something that could happen rather than something that was prescribed by a movie. What do you think? What do you think is it, is at stake here? I mean, what 
what was 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 Spikely trying to say something, or was he just sort of painting a canvas for us? I mean, I think he was. I mean, I think the genius of the movie is that it doesn't say. I mean, I don't know how to put this. Like, it says a lot, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It, there is no lesson to be learned from this. This is why it's sort of resonantly timeless, right? It isn't trying to solve a problem. It isn't presenting a fantasy of the world at that time. I think the thing that makes it great is, I mean, and I mean, it's sort of beyond great in some ways. It's sort of oracular is that it isn't really about solving any problem. It's just a presentation of the problem in this very digestible form, right? It isn't a, it's not a parable. It's not, I mean, I, let me, it's not, it is, it is a parable in some ways, but it also isn't, I mean, there's something digestible and sort of easy to, to take away from a parable, which I guess makes this movie uh, a parable in that sense. But it also isn't, it isn't, a, I guess what I'm saying is it's not, not a metaphor for anything. It is the actual thing. It's just that what he does is he sort of limits the scope of the, of the, of the problem of the drama, basically, so that you really are, I mean, it's very Greek in this way, right? You, you, you're in one place for one period of time and something is building to something happening. And the tragedy, of course, the movie ends in tragedy, although it has this great coda, right? Where um, Sal and, and Mookie at the end are sort of debating. No, they're not debating anything. Sal, Mookie wants to get paid. And Sal is like, are you fucking kidding me? You just burned my shop down. You want me to pay you? And Mookie's like, yeah, I worked. You got to pay me. Um, and I just found, I mean, I think a lot of people were put off by that. Um, and I just think that the movie's, it's harshness is, and it's lack of sentimentality on any level, um, is just, I mean, I think it, the thing that, that makes it, that gives it its longevity is for one thing that is dealing with race and, I, and, what, and what I would say is an honest way, a rarely sort of aberrantly honest way. And I think it's this idea that nothing is sugarcoated, but also these characters are made as unpleasant as you can make people in some ways. <laughs> like there is a version of this movie where Mookie goes to Sal. Well, first of all, there's a version of the movie where Mookie isn't the person who throws the trash can through the window, right? Mm. Mookie is the person who stops somebody from trying to throw the trash can through the window. Like, it, it, you know, in, in another movie radio, I mean, um, bugging out who's like the, the neighborhood, you know, uh, hot air activist, basically. Um, He's the guy who throws the trash can through the window, hmm. um, or you know, one of the one of the one of the kid, the one of the the group of kids that Martin Lawrence is in. Like maybe one of them throws a trash can through the window, but it definitely wouldn't be Mookie in like Rob Reiner do the right thing. Um, <laughs> but there's something really daring about having you know your protagonist or like your one of your major characters be the person who instigates this riot, and then at the end is like. I'm not even going to apologize for it. And you owe me some money to the person, you know, the, the alleged victim in this story. That's the other thing about this movie too. I don't know if you feel this way, but like, I feel like in the, uh, in the other version of this movie, um, you know, Sal, the movie's about Sal. <laughs> the movie's you, you, the movie starts with Sal waking up and going to, to Brooklyn from where are they for that? They're from Bensonhurst. I yeah. can't remember now. Yeah. I think there's um, a, 
there's a version where Sal is more like Pino too, where it was Sal is is yes. is more yeah. is yeah. more villainous and and even like um Radio Rahim isn't a guy who blasts the same song over and over all day. You know, like Radio Rahim is somehow is victimized but is more of uh, you know a person who is he's is, sympathetic. Yeah, more more sympathetic. So like as a protest, Bugging Out and Radio Rahim's um encounter with Sal is not very coherent, right? They're just sort of yelling at him. And so I think there's a version of the movie where they give a more eloquent uh, argument mm-hmm, for the mm-hmm. Wall of Fame, and Sal is much more brutal about it. Uh, it's just really interesting. I think Spike Lee did some interesting things because he, you go all the way back. Sal is very sympathetic, and I think Danny Aiello made him sympathetic, but there's a scene early in the movie when Bugging Out first flips out over the wall where Sal grabs the baseball bat, and it's actually his hothead son, uh, Pino, who takes the bat from him. Tells him to put it away, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we have we have the seeds of this of this Sal who blows his top, yet right before the meltdown scene, he lets some kids in, including the Martin Lawrence character from the neighborhood who just want his pizza. You know, he's in a good mood right before the big meltdown scene. And it's interesting, having read Spike Lee's film journal, he had, to, as the writer of this story, he had to think of a cause for a riot. And this is from his film journal. He says, if a riot is the climax of the film, what will cause the riot? Take your pick. An unarmed black child shot. The cops say he was reaching for a gun. A young woman charged with nothing but a parking violation who dies in police custody. And he lists some other ones, but those seem so prescient to things that happened a couple years ago, right? This mm-hmm, is this mm-hmm. is Spike Lee writing in his journal in 1987 or 1988. So you have these characters on the canvas of the movie who are very complicated and are not falling into, you know, night on white stallion, good or evil. And then you have a very thoughtful Spike Lee trying to create a movie that draws on real life and hypothetical situations. I don't know if there was a, if there was a historical situation of a woman who died in police custody for a parking violation in 1987, but in 2016 or something, a woman died in, in Baltimore, I believe. So it's, it's interesting. How, yeah. Sandra Bland. Yeah. 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 It, it's interesting how um, Spike Lee was creating a dramatic situation for a movie that came out in 1989, but 30 years later, it feels like that, layer of the movie uh is very is very resonant Mm. yeah i mean i think that this the the sort of amazing thing about this movie is i mean it's sort of i mean it's the tragedy of of america right like these things you could go back a hundred years before that and find and find similar like and find many more similar versions right this was a the things depicted you know, the, the the situation depicted in this movie is, I mean, it's weirdly benign if you know how lynchings work. You know, even hmm. the idea that you'd have a, a sort of black riot, um, I, I don't know, it's sort of, it's, it's this distilled version of a thing that had been happening, that's been happening in this country for, you know, centuries. Um, like, either because a, you know, mob of white people have descended upon a black person, um, to to lynch them or you know do far more in addition to lynching them um far more horrible things in addition to lynching them or you have just you know a neighborhood uprising where people are just like fed up with you know a particular incident situation something you know martin luther king's assassinated um you know they're they're the the sort of rodney king la riots um there's any number of things 
um, you know, the OJ, you know, it, it, what, any, anything that can sort of lead to um, these, these sort of outbursts of emotional either anger or relief or something. Um, they've been going on in this country for a long time. And this movie, this is the first movie, this might be the, is it, let me think about this. Is this the only movie that really has dared to depict anything like what it's depicting? Um, hmm. I mean, I think it's the only, it's the only one. It's the, I can't think of another movie. I mean, there are lots of movies about race. There's lots of movies about racism. Um, this is the only one I can think of that is about a, a sort of, a sort of, um, American racial energy that actually does exist. <laughs> well, well, there's some there's some really interesting wrinkles in the right, and until I rewatched the movie yesterday, I forgot about this. That they turn there's a faction of the crowd decides to turn on the Korean store after they've burned down Sal's famous. They um, sort of the corner guys decide that it's it's the Korean store's turn, and the Korean guy basically says, "I'm black. I'm black. I'm not white." Uh, and I'd, oh, yeah. I'd, I'd forgotten about that scene, you know, that, that again, it's not it's not this cinematic situation where it's, you know, here is here is the uh, here's the the tension and the conflict. And here's the reaction to the conflict that it, that it sort of spreads out, that there's a very there's, there's some interesting wrinkles to what happens in the riot itself. Um, and, you know, Actually, there's racial dynamics. Other ones that I've forgotten, like there's Clifton, the yuppie. Do you remember this guy? The guy who rides his mountain bike? He has... Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's... Uh, um, he's God, what's that actor's name? Will Sadler? Is that who it is? Well, he was in... Is, um, is it Savage? He was in The Deer Hunter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, John Savage. John Savage. Yeah, and so it's it's a guy who could be from, like, 2015. He has, like, a little hipster ponytail and, and a Larry Bird shirt, which is sort of a feels like a little bit of Kiss a spike death for that guy right but he's he's like the guy he he was an anomaly who I, I didn't understand when i was a teenager watching this movie for the first time i didn't understand what he was doing there he runs over bugging out shoes and everybody yells at him and he owns a brownstone well now bed as i understand it has a lot of white young hipster type people living there uh, and, and so it's interesting yeah. how, how, <laughs> how Spike threw that wrinkle in there, too, is that years before even Williamsburg was a place where, where that had been transformed by what you might call gentrification, he sort of showed the seed of that in this character, Clifton. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, you watch it now and you, you really are just kind of like, oh, my God, that is that is a thing that's happening in Brooklyn right now. But yeah, that guy that guy is is a real character. Um and he's all over Brooklyn. <laughs> he's right. Not just in that style. <laughs> yeah. Um but I don't know. It's it's fascinating to like, you know, all there isn't a single thing in this movie because you know, it isn't so much the other sort of genius thing about it is that it it isn't it isn't real. Like it isn't, it's not quite done as, as realism, right? It's sort of hmm. done as, as, as theater, as like, as a, as a Greek tragedy, you know, that the thing that you're watching corresponds to reality, but in no way is it presented as real, right? The space is sort of laid out to function almost as, as a parable. Right. And, 
And so you have these very specific locations that are meaningful in their way. The pizzeria is, is like a, is like a very important um, site for activity. The street corner where um, Sweet Dick Willie and the other two guys hang out um, is a very specific location. And so every, every place in this movie is a recurring place. Um, The Korean bodega. I was going to say, even the whiteness is a very specific New York whiteness, right? It's Italian-American. Right, right, right. Which is commented upon, you know, Mookie tells Pino that his hair is kinkier, your hair is kinkier than mine, right? And so there's sort of this working class Italian, the wall of fame, and, and sorry to go sort of on a tangent here, but the wall of fame is sort of, it seems a manifestation of a community that isn't that far from being considered immigrant outsiders, right? Uh, and so, right. so it's a very complex and very New York specific whiteness that, that is being manifested by Sal and his family. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, historically, you know, in this country, Italians for a long time were considered, you know, they were, con- they were considered black. I mean, not actually black. They were never slaves. And, but in terms of the, you know, the esta- like establishment white people, um, you know, or like, you know, other working class white people, um, you know, Italians were, they were an ethnicity that was sort of deemed dirty and foul. Um, and they had, there were slurs for Italians. Um, and so at some point, you know, the country just decided <laughs> that, that Italians were going to be sort of graduated into whiteness yeah. and, you know, aligned in like, you know, safe to politically align themselves against black people. And, you know, blackness has always been the thing that, that, that new white people in this country have, have learned to align themselves against. Um, And not just white people, like anybody who comes to this country comes to understand that like the worst you can be is a black person. Um, So groups sort of, you know, they either bring their own racism against black people to America, or they inherit it because it makes it, it allows them to fit in. Um, and Italians were one of those groups. Yeah, yeah. So it feels like there's, you know, like there's a specificity to the Italians as a part of this dynamic. There's a specificity to the Koreans being, you know, the, the merchants in that neighborhood, and to the fact that it's the neighborhood is a little bit Puerto Rican, um, and it feels like Spike Lee's. Um, More than I remember, actually, like it's I mean, he he goes out of his way to establish like that. That is it's a it's a it's a black and Latino neighborhood. Mm. Yeah. Well, Mookie's Mookie's uh, girlfriend is is Puerto Rican. His his uh, very in her in her breakout role. um, It's it's interesting how um, how strange and i don't know what your experience was but but how strange how easy it is to forget how rare this kind of movie was in 1989 like spike lee had made his first movie in 1986 and while this was in production uh i think the jeff jam guys tried to get him to direct tougher than leather which ended up being a <laughs> sort of an un- unwatchable they did yeah an unwatchable run dmc movie that was directed very poorly by rick rubin who i love rick rubin but i don't really think he should be a film director and then also they actually while the well when school days came out which is spike lee's second day movie they 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 moved its release date because they didn't want it to compete with action jackson which you would think oh wow why on earth would action jackson which is 
who who's in Action Jackson? Is that Carl Weathers? Carl Weathers. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like a, it's like this action movie. It has very little thematic overlap with School Days. Um. Anyway, at, at the time, it was so rare. I'll read you another part from Spike Lee's journal. He talks about well, he talks about wanting to to bank on his on his um, success as a black filmmaker. He says, I want, to, I want to tell this from a black point of view. I've been blessed with the opportunity to express the views of black people who otherwise don't have access to power and media. I want to take advantage of this while I'm still bankable. Um, and so that was very rare in 1989. And he also says, and this is interesting, given the Greek tragedy aspects that you're talking about. He says, it can't be a diatribe, white man this, white man that. The treatment of racism right. will have to be carried out in the subtext until, through the subtext till the end of the film. No matter what, the story has to be told from a black perspective. On the other hand, I don't want this to be preachy because I hate those sorts of films. And so I think it's easy to forget. I think Do the Right Thing has become a part of the history of film in such a way that we forget what... What other films with a black with black representation or a black point of view were like back then? Non-existent for one thing, and you know you could only have a black movie a month at that point, which is kind of funny to think about because you know the eighties weren't the greatest time for black movies after the seventies, which were which you know I would say was the greatest time for black movies. Um, in terms of just the volume, not necessarily the quality. Mm-hmm. Um, you just had this, you know, you had at some point, like in 1974, I could probably look this up as I talk to you since I have a document that would give me the exact number. But I mean, you had at some point, you know, for, you know, 70 something movies at a 300 opening in the, in the U S that were like starring black people in the 70s. Some, some, yeah. Night. Well, I mean, I, I can find you a number while I'm talking, but like, it's just kind of astounding to think that you came out of this one period of like robust black energy, right? Where you'd have all these movies starring black people, and then all of a sudden you don't have them anymore. And you know, and the black movies you got were such a regression to an old way of being black in the movies too. Um, where you sort of you were getting more movies about black people serving white people or being adjacent to white people. Well, um, this was the big. This was the. This is the year that Driving Miss Daisy uh, won the Oscar, right? Same year. Yeah. yeah same year. Um, uh, and that was, you know, that <laughs> that should tell you some version of what you need to know in some way. <laughs> um, but you know, it's funny because you know that. 89 was a great movie year um, in general. And the idea that your five best picture nominees would have been Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams, Driving Miss Daisy, um, My Left Foot, and... Uh, oh, shoot, I'm missing one. Anyway, oh, Born on the Fourth of July, that's the mm-hmm. other one. Um the the you know i mean the idea that you wouldn't have sex lives and videotape or do the right thing or crimes and misdemeanors um you know it just tells you i mean if you look at those five movies the only one that's even remotely you know political and it's not even i mean i don't know i'm sort of torn about uh uh born on the 4th of july at this point but you know i mean it just was a period where the academy even was even you know, at the height of its discomfort with, with reality, you know, they wanted things that were going to make them feel good. They wanted, 
Um, they wanted uplifting stories that like were sad, but 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 also kind of uplifting in their sadness. Um, so the idea that you'd have do the right thing as a best picture nominee, just it was it was already impossible. Or the idea that you'd have a movie like Sex Lies and Videotape, you know, about like a like a like a freaky freaky guy who does weird things with 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 women um, as a best picture nominee. Those and or when Harry Met Sally, which is like right. <laughs> You know, a, like one of the great movies that that also, you know, had to settle for a screenplay nomination like those other two films. Um, well, as if to underscore how complicated it was back then, Sex, Lies and Videotape was a big buzz movie, but not for the Oscars. It was for, is it Cannes? It was the Palme d'Or, right? Um, right, yep. And then, and then Wim Wenders famously said that, well, Do the Right Thing doesn't have any heroes. And Spike Lee said, well, what's, what's heroic about sitting at home and, and masturbating, right? Which is sort of one of the, one of the complications of Sex, and Videotape. <laughs> so you had this, you had a, you had a time when, um, you know, the American Academy sort of ignored this, this psychosexual drama, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But uh, which the French paid attention to, but it's like do the right thing was even too much for the French, right? That, that people just didn't know what to do with do the right thing back then. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it was too real. I think, you know, if you think about the way the critics were reacting to this movie, certain critics, you know, Joe Klein wrote a thing that, you know, if, if, if Dinkins, if Dinkins, if Mayor David Dinkins loses this election, is Spike Lee, it's going to be Spike Lee's fault or things like, you know, if, if, if there are riots that break out, Spike Lee is going to have blood on his hands. Mm. Um, you know, things like that. People were actually accusing, you know, blaming any sort of anything that bad that black people do on Spike Lee. Um, the movie came out the same year as the Central Park, that Central Park jogger rape case. Right. Yeah. Um, that happened at the end of the year, but you know, or it was in the summer. But like it, the movie came out. Movie came out in July, I believe. It came out July Fourth weekend. I want to say. I think that's right. Um, and that I think that that was. I think the Central Park case was August. Um, but it was the same summer. So I mean, you 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 have a sense of like what was going on. People were scared. People were scared that that you know there was going to be a, you know a, a, some kind of race riot. Um, and there was every reason to think that there probably could have been, but the idea that like this movie would have been responsible for, for instigating it is just laughable to me, given, given all of the other real life things that were going on in this country that very much could have been the inciting incident in, in some sort of race riot too. I wonder if, I wonder if that two plus two equals five thinking was sort of part of just the way media was constructed at the time, you know, like if you were, if you were sitting in your office writing your, your movie review for the New Yorker, then you sort of had to make some conclusions that weren't borne out empirically. I mean, why do you think people were asserting that? Do you think they really did think Spike Lee's movie would, would cause riots? I mean, I was about to say that that's something white people would say, but like Stanley Crouch was one of the people who was like, you know, who was like mad at Spike Lee for, for, you know, suggesting that 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 the things that happen in this movie are an accurate portrayal of of anything, or you know, even in even in in dramatizing uh, uh, this problem, um, Stanley Crouch Cr- is black. Yeah, he's a, he's a black. He was a, he's a he is still a black critic. 
And, you know, at the time, he was one of those people who you who was just every, you know, there was a period where it was a really interesting period. And I know you remember this, like, like during, during this period where people were just, where the media just really let critics on TV to talk about (laughs) things happening in the world. Right. And Stanley Crouch was just one of those people who was just always on TV. Well, he said um, a lot of similar things about hip-hop, I think. I think he was, um, you know, hip-hop and, and gangster rap, he, w- he would make the same, you know, basically that art will create actual human violence type conclusions. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a respectability person in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's no reason to think that, um, I don't know. I mean, I, those things, the way of that, that way of thinking is just always so wrong to me, but um, and you, you know, history is never kind to it because when you're talking about something like do the right thing, there's just like, this movie is this, the life of this movie and the importance of this movie sort of outlives all of the arguments against it. Um, and it kind of embarrasses its critics in a lot of ways. I mean, Spike Lee really is having the last laugh on this one. Um, just because, you know, I mean, he knows, he knew at the time I, you know, it sounds like from this journal, um, you know, he knew what he had, you know, and he knew the power that he, you know, he knew the power of the imagery and the ideas. Um, and I think that the thing that scared people is that, you know, we were at this point where, I mean, just think about using public enemies fight the power, right? It's not yeah. like they, it's not like Radio Rahim is walking up and down the street playing bring the noise, right? Right. Um, He's playing Fight the Power, and it is a song that, I mean, even on its surface is just about resistance, and it's just about, you know, the word no. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Yes, he's straight out racist, the sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucking man, John Wayne. Cause I'm black and I'm proud already. already. I'm hyped for some amp. Most of my heroes don't appear in no stamp. You know, I mean, the idea that, like, that is... That's the movie's theme song, and it's the song that recurs. It's the only song you hear as many times as you hear it in this movie. And I just think that there are just so many ingenious, you know, the use of leitmotif, the use of, of you know, these this sort of camera style where, for instance, with Radio Rahim, you have this great moment where he puts his rings into the camera and Spike Lee gets out of the way so the camera can get to Radio Rahim, you know, this sort of, I think the thing that I was getting at before about the, about the sort of, um, the theatricality of it is that there is a kind of, um, it's not so much that the scenes are showing, but there's an artfulness to the way it's presenting the artificiality of this world, right? The pizza looks fake. The <laughs> way that, you know, there's a staginess to the way people are blocked for the camera, um, the way the angles are canted in the in the, the moment where the, before the riot happens, where Radio Rahim, um, where Sal, uh, where Radio Rahim pulls Sal to the other side of the counter, um, and there's just all of these things that you know the scene where you know Mookie goes over to Tina's and takes the ice cube and rubs on her nipples. I mean, they're just all of these things that are that are made to look sort of sort of slightly more than real. 
Um, well, even Tina, and, like, the movie opens with <laughs> Tina dancing to fight the power. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, yeah, which yeah, confused exactly. me when I first watched it, but upon rewatching it, it's basically, it gives you a chance to absorb the lyrics to fight the power. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so it's almost like it, it, it sets up a certain tension in the movie, you know, even though this is a movie about a certain neighborhood that seems pas- uh, sort of placid at first. The movie starts with with uh, with Rosie Perez dancing to fight the power. So I think that there's a lot of very intentional decisions that went into how this movie is seen and is is paced and is organized. Yes, and I, you know, I love that opening. And it's funny because it's so literal, right? I mean, she is she's actually boxing. <laughs> yeah, she has boxing gloves on at one point. And yes, yes, and it's just. I, I don't know. It's this movie. I can't explain it. It's just, it's so, it's so perfect. It's so perfectly made. And, and you know, the things that shouldn't work about it work because he had the daring to try them. Um, well, I have a quick, and you know, it's, Oh, go ahead. Well, okay, a quick question. We can fold this into the conversation that part of the, the mythos of this movie in 2019 is that it was playing on Barack and Michelle Obama's first date? Um, oh yeah. And I haven't seen Southside with you. I haven't. I don't know what their reaction to it was. Do you know what 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 they made um, of the movie? We don't really know. We know that they like. I mean, they like. They, uh, clearly, it was significant enough. It's funny because I think that that they don't even have to engage with it as a movie because you understand the symbolism of these two people mm. going to this movie on their first date. So the idea we don't really even know, cause you know, in her book, they just say that that's the movie they saw. They didn't say whether they, she doesn't say um, in becoming whether she liked it or whether they had it, you know, what, what they taught. Although I think she might, I might be wrong about that. They, she, they, she might mention that they talked about, the themes or something. But the funny thing was that, that whatever conversation they would have had got upstaged or preempted because I think she runs into a, into her boss on this date. And the boss is like, Oh, you're taking that young Barack Obama out. Uh, uh, you guys are uh, okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. Um, and that becomes the, the comedy of running into that guy becomes the story. I, I would love um, I would love to to fold the two of them into the conversation we're having right now, Barack and Michelle, <laughs> uh, to, to figure out their their take uh, on the movie. I, you know, I, I'd heard that that they chose do the right thing over driving Miss Daisy, which sounds like too symbolic. You know, too too perfect. That's not true. The movie. Wait, did, is that what they said? It's something I came across in my research just like yesterday. Huh. So so I don't know. And again, I haven't seen Southside with the you. Movie either. didn't. Driving Miss Daisy didn't come out until the winter. Okay, well, the, in that case, then is that's probably one of those urban myths that has come around that detail of this movie. You know that somehow, for somebody's telling of this story, it was important for them to skip Driving Miss Daisy and go to do the right thing instead. Um, but whatever the case, I mean, even if they chose it over Action Jackson, well, I guess Action Jackson came out at the same time as, as School Days, but. Um, it's just, I mean, given everything we're talking about now, I just wonder, you know, I just wonder what they made of, of the artistry and Spike Lee's decisions and, and everything else that went into this, simply because it was a, it was a kind of movie, not just in its, in, its, in its Greek mythology way of dealing with the drama, but the fact that it was a movie about black people by black people, which was pretty rare in 1989. Yeah, I mean, 
that was, I mean, well, it, it was definitely rare. It was also definitely rare to have a movie by black people about black people uh, not be a comedy, right? Um, right. Not be ostensibly a comedy, right? Including for um, Spike Lee, who's who's even though he had some some hard edges to his first movies, they they were considered comedies. Yeah, I I sort of I don't know. I'm torn about the like the way people have thought about that movie too. Um, which I mean, was, the, the other movie? two movies as being comedies, okay, right? Okay. Um, I mean, they they're they, I don't know. I mean, it's funny because like classifying them to me, they're Spike Lee movies. <laughs> Right, yeah. But I mean, at the at the time, I mean, at the time, I mean, would you call she's got to have it a comedy? Um, I don't know. It's funny. Like, it's. I wonder. I I wonder about like how you would talk about a Jim Jarmusch movie, like under not you, Rolf, but like, uh, just like the way that those movies were classified when they came out, which pretty much was around the same time that these of these uh, as these you know Spike Lee's movies. Well, another thing that Spike Lee mentions in his film journal is that he does want do the right thing to be a comedy, but in the sense that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Or Dog Day Afternoon or a comedy. Exactly, 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 exactly. Yeah. So- um, like, like life comedy, like, like life as comedy or the comedy of life or something um, where, you know, at some point you have to stop laughing for a minute at least because, you know, it's not funny anymore. Mm. Um, or it can't, it can't just be funny. Um, I don't know. I really love, I love that idea. Um, but I don't know. I feel like when you were in Wichita, what was that like for you? I mean, what was, what was, what was happening racially there, if anything? And how did this movie sort of inform your relationship to, to your place of, uh, you know, to where you were growing up? It's interesting that, of course, you would think it would be framed in a racial understanding way, but I was excited about the movie because it was different. Um, and, mm-hmm, and Spike mm-hmm. Lee was sort of an it director at the time, race notwithstanding. Um, and then I, actually I was working in Colorado this summer, that summer. So it wasn't Wichita specific. Um, I also sort of, I also sort of considered myself or I fancied myself a filmmaker. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and then also it, it seemed as, it seemed as New York specific as it did racially specific. And so I grew up in Wichita. I grew up in a fairly racially diverse environment. Maybe, I don't know what counts as racially diverse. It was, my high school was maybe 65% white and, and um, 35% other of which maybe 15% was black. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I had the blessing of being, so like my, my experiences with, with black people were specific to activities in a way that we can forget about in high school. It's like, I knew guys from the track team and, and, and guys and girls from honors classes, you know. Um, and so my, my experience with race was very specific to certain activities. And so in my little f- fake Spike Lee-style film journal I, I kept at the time, and I think one appeal to Spike Lee at the time was that he was an independent filmmaker. and he was Yeah, that seems more right, yeah. Yeah, and he was showing process. You know, he was, he was regardless of what his subject, was, uh, subject matter was, he was showing process. And so in my little film journal, it was, I just mainly kept, kept track of characters and like my idea for a movie was closer to slacker than do the right thing. But, mm-hmm. uh, but when it did touch on race, and I, I probably felt almost obligated to talk on race about race in, in my journal, it was about what I had sensed in, in, in black kids I knew, I knew, 
right? Like there was a certain, the, the black kids in the honors classes had a certain discomfort with me outside of the honors classes in a way that my track teammates didn't, right? That there was, mm-hmm. that, there was that they were a different person in a mostly white honors class than around their friends outside of the honors class. And, and that, that's something I probably didn't even really understand at the time. Um, so in a way, the, the, the racial, even like there were no Italian Americans in my high school, you know, there, there were Vietnamese Americans. Um, and so, so that's why I think one of the strengths of this is its specificity. Uh, the, do, do the right things. Its specificity was able to say something very strong and powerful and, oracular i think you said was was the word you had earlier uh, about race in a way that um that makes it timeless and i'm I'm sure that there's an i'm sure that there's a racially specific wichita movie that could have been made at the time um but i think it's it's through the specificity of what spike lee was doing uh that made that movie what it was and i think you know as a white kid from wichita i think there's certain things that i didn't completely understand you know they, they say that the big misunderstanding about this is that white audiences were upset about sal's pizzeria being burned down and black audiences were upset about radio rahim dying um, right. Yep. 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 And I think that's, that's amazing, right? <laughs> w- w- what is, and it's not not only is it amazing, but it's like I think that that's a blindness that that still happens. I think if if do the right if the right and do the right thing was a YouTube video and it was uploaded without comment, the white and black reactions to it in 2019 would be would be different. You know that, that you you grab that you there's a certain blindness to what you see in situations and because radio rahim is is a little bit annoying and even the puerto ricans and and the corner guys think he's his music is a bit much right um and now think about just think about like adding that detail by the way like even he gets on the people's like the movie knows he's annoying right yeah which which doesn't detract i think i think there's a certain audience that watches it and they don't subtract that from his death right um where there's another, there's another kind of audience who will watch that and they'll see him as a character or they'll see Sal's, you know, pizzeria burning down in the background and they simply won't see that Radio Rahim didn't have to die, right? Um, right, right. And, and so that's... Right. But you see the same thing happening, like, you know, just in reaction to the, to the, you know, the split in these police deaths, right? Like when the police, you know, when a black person dies in police custody... The assumption there's either sympathy for the officer, right, um, or there's the assumption that the person deserved whatever happened to them. Um, you know, unarmed people shot. Well, they must have done something because you know why else would you why else would you need to be shot? Um, right. Well, I don't know. It's just it's really fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, even like I don't know if Eric Garner is is he the one is he the one who was. Uh, uh, he died in in New York of, was for selling loose cigarettes. Was it was was it Eric? Yeah, he was selling Lucy's. Was choked to death. You know, was pleading that he you know couldn't famously couldn't breathe. Um, and he's having an as his his asthma was induced. You know, the guy who Daniel Pantaleo, the guy the officer who applied the chokehold, is currently on. It's not trial. It's like a disciplinary hearing to determine whether or not he should keep his job. Basically. Um, that trial, I think it might've just ended, but I mean, it, it, it was, you know, he had another, he was, every attempt to sort of indict this guy or punish him in some way has, has, has failed. We'll find, I don't think we know what happened 
um, with this disciplinary hearing. But um, yes, that well, is. I don't. I don't know if that's a perfect corollary because, in a way, he's even more sympathetic than Radio Rahim, right? You know, because he was. He was well, like... I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the. I guess in these cases, to try to determine what sympathy, like what, like. What does sympathy really get you when we're talking? I mean, the, the genius of making Radio Rahim such a pain in the ass is that the, that his being annoying isn't really the point, right? The question is, the point is, no matter how annoying he is, I don't think death is really the <laughs> right. Well, is really the way to deal with 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 what what a pain he can be. And, and and sympathetic can be used in two terms. It can be sympathetic as a dramatic character or sympathetic as a human being, right? Um, right, right, right. And, and so it, it's interesting once you bring in real life situations, how complicated it gets. And even during the the scene of Radio Rahim's death, one police officer, it happens in a matter of seconds, but one police officer tells the other police officer to, to lay off. Yeah. You know, that basically yeah. it's a procedural thing. They're trying to get his arms behind his back and he's resisting. And then within seven seconds, Rahim is dead. And and this is another thing. This is another reason why it's it's such a smart movie is that it wasn't just you know the bad guys in black choking the guy to death, but one of the officers is actually arguing for his partner to lay off a little bit. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean the movie is full of those little touches, right? Just you know having mother sister be the person who's screaming, "Burn it down, burn it down!" Like you would never think in a million years that mother sister would be a person who would be shouting for the destruction of something. Um, you know, in her neighborhood. Um, and she's later and, very you know, distraught too. Like she, she's, she, yes. she falls into a weeping fit later. And I don't, I don't know how exactly we should interpret that, but she was very, very outraged at one point. And, and she and, and, and the mayor are part of an older generation of, of residents, you know, who might have a different political view on things. But then later she's, she's distraught after she says, burn it down, that she's, she's basically, the bear has to come in and, and comfort her. So that, even the complexity of mother sister in that last scene is, is really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, nobody, nobody is what, you know, I mean, this is like the little wrinkles. I mean, I would love to know what Ruby D's reaction was to like, you know, Spike Lee's asking her to to be to to have this character be someone who is then gonna advocate for the destruction of this of this uh, of the pizzeria. Wesley, I know you're in Toronto. You have to go. Any final comments, insights, take homes from Do the Right Thing thirty years later? Uh, you could put it out today, and it would st- <laughs> it would still mean the same thing. You could release it this summer and and not change a single thing. Yeah, no, it is. And it wasn't until I rewatched it. I've always loved to do the right thing, but it wasn't until I rewatched it and, and just in the 2019 context that I realized that it really hasn't aged that much. No, not. I mean, it is. It's a, you know, on our show, uh, still processing, we did a we did an episode around the time of the Oscars that was just advocating for, you know, just like the comparing Spike Lee being nominated for an Oscar in 80 in 1990 this is being nominated last year or earlier this year um and just think you know realizing that this is just a perfect movie it's just perfect
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Wesley Morris's film criticism and Spike Lee's body of work, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>